I got sick of myself. I didn't notice the time I was wasting, for one day passed like a smear of grey into another, and I wished I could drag myself away from the district, especially now Pliny was always there. At last, one Saturday, I fought hard against a habit so useless, and I had the courage to drive past the place for once, and did not park my car up the street. I drove on, taking side streets, which I knew, nevertheless, would lead me back. But I made a mistake with the one ways, and got on the main Brixton Road, and was heading north to freedom from myself. It was astonishing to be free. It was seven o'clock in the evening, and to celebrate I went into a big pub where they had singers on Saturday nights. It was already filling up with people. How normal, how cheerful they were, a crowd of them drinking, shouting and talking, the human race. I got a drink and chose a quiet place in a corner, and I was taking my first mouthful of the beer, saying to myself, Here's to yourself, my boy, as though I had just met myself as I used to be. And then, with the glass still at my lips, I saw, in a crowd at the other end of the bar, Pliny, with his back half-turned. I recognized him by his jug-handled ears, his white hair and the stoop of a tall man. He was not in his dressy clothes, but in a shabby suit that made him seem disguised. He was listening to a woman who had a large handbag and had bright blonde hair and a big red mouth who was telling him a joke, and she banged him in the stomach with her bag and laughed. Someone near me said, Lau's on the job early this evening. Lau Drake. All the old stories about Pliny and his woman came back to me, and how old Castle of Westbury said that Pliny's mother had told him, when she was saying what a good son he was to her, that the one and only time he had been with a woman, he had come home and told her and put his head in her laps and cried like a child and promised on the Bible he'd never do such a thing again. Castle swore this was true. I put down my glass and got out of the pub fast without finishing it, not because I was afraid of Pliny, oh no. I drove straight back to Pliny's shop. I rang the bell. The drum started, beating a few taps, and then a window upstairs opened. "'What do you want?' said Isabel in a whisper. "'I want to see you. Open the door.' "'It's locked. Get the key.' She considered me for a long time. "'I haven't got one,' she said, still in a low voice, so hard to hear that she had to say it twice. "'Where have you been?' she said. We stared at each other's white faces in the dark. She had missed me. "'You've got a key you must have,' I said. "'Somewhere. What about the back door?' She leaned on the window, her arms on the sill, she was studying my clothes. "'I have something for you,' I said. This changed her. She leaned forward, trying to see more of me in the dark. She was curious. Today I understand what I did not understand then. She was looking me over minutely, inch by inch, what she could see of me in the sodium light of the street lamp, not because I was strange or unusual— but because I was not. 
She had been shut up, either alone or with Pliny, without seeing another soul for so long. He was treating her like one of his collector's pieces, like the mycin August had said he kept hidden upstairs. She closed the window. I stood there, wretched and impatient. I went down the goods entrance, ready to kick the side door down, break a window, climb in somehow. The side door had no letterbox or glass panes, no handle even. I stood in front of it, and suddenly it was opened. She was standing there.